Word of God is not kind to the concepts of hypocrisy and repentance. It's not kind at all to those two concepts. Jesus himself was especially critical of the scribes and the Pharisees who made a habit of living inconsistently with the truth. Matthew, in fact, records 16 times, just in the Gospel of Matthew, that Jesus refers to these scribes and Pharisees as hypocrites. And what he says there is pretty hard. Seven times in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus begins his rebuke this way. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. It's pretty harsh. You don't have to turn there, but just listen to these verses in chapter 23. As Jesus, toward the end of his ministry, confronts hypocrisy and confronts duplicity and the very people that were supposed to be leading his teaching. Listen to what he says in verses 13 and following. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from men, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering in to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, because you devour widows' houses. Even for a while, for pretense, you make long prayers, therefore you shall receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel about on sea and land to make one proselytize, proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he's obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important? The gold of the temple that sanctified the gold. And whoever swears by that altar, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the offering upon it, he's obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by both the altar and everything on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by both the temple and by him who dwells within it. And he who swears by heaven swears by both the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law. There are weightier provisions of the law, by the way. And you've neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these things are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you clean the outside of the cup of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean out the inside of the cup of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, verse 29. Over and over again, it's real intense. This is the sweet, meek, mild Jesus. And I'm sure he said it with a lot more enthusiasm than I just did. Woe to you, seven times. In just that one chapter, kind of hypocrisy and duplicity. If we were to scale what Jesus said there and look at it just simply analytically, we might say that these scribes and Pharisees practiced a worldview that was inconsistent and incoherent. And we'd be correct by saying that. But it's interesting to me that the Lord didn't approach that situation with Israel's supposed spiritual leaders in an academic fashion. He was full of emotion 
and righteous indignation when he attacks these people. When he attacks them. That's what And he's not just attacking their behavior. We should see that. Sometimes we say we should condemn the behavior and not the person. That's fine for us. And Jesus went right after the people. Did you notice that? He said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Not just woe to the behavior. He goes right after the people because in his mind, the behavior of the people, and this is key for tonight, by the way, when we're going to get to Ephesians 2.10, in Jesus' mind, the behavior of the scribes and Pharisees was so so intersecting with with their belief system and that they themselves as individuals, that in order to condemn the behavior, he condemns the individual. So woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Now, I agree, we need to be careful of this because sometimes people say, you know, that homosexuality is a sin and then we condemn, we condemn homosexuals and don't invite them into our churches. And, and I just take that because that's the term most popular of our day. There are many, many others. Well, actually God is going to condemn the homosexual as well as homosexuality. But that person does because Christ has forgiven the sins of the people that watch that same thing. So now, I, I say from a practical standpoint, we need to be very careful doing this. But I want, to, I want to show you what Jesus did. He associated the individual with the unrighteous behavior. There's a close association there. Now tonight, we're going to see Jesus associating the individual believer with their behavior as well. And there's not a disconnect between that person and what they believe and how they act. Jesus considered them both brothers. Now, granted, and, and we should grant this, the situation of the Pharisees was a bit different from ours in that the Pharisees were not redeemed individuals. And a couple of exceptions, of course, that we read this from Joseph of Arimathea to a couple. But they were masquerading as God's representatives and not acting consistently with what their true role was supposed to be, hence the term hypocrite. A hypocrite is not acting consistently with who they really are. Well, in a sense, in a sense, you could say the Pharisees really were acting consistently with who they were, because they were, that, that's, that's really what was in their soul. But Jesus is making a point. He's viewing them from people who are supposed to be leading Israel. This is how you're presenting yourself, but you're not acting consistently with that. So granted, there is a bit of difference. But God expects us to live consistently with our position in Christ. He, he expects us to perform good works as part of our position in Christ. And He's given us everything that we need to do, everything that we need in order to do those good works. The term integration that we introduced last week refers to the combining of one thing to another so that they both become one. The integration of position and experience is then key to living a successful Christian life. The Christian view of a successful life is measured by the degree of integration between doctrine and practice, between divinely revealed truth that's resonant in someone's soul and one's personal apprehension of that truth. And by apprehension, we said last week, I didn't just mean comprehension. I mean apprehension, grabbing a hold of that truth, squeezing it and doing something with it, or living consistently with it. God desires a fully integrated Christian life with no disconnect between what we know to be the truth and how we interact with that truth and how we behave consistently 
live that truth. Every one of us has a certain amount of doctrinal content in our soul. We have truth in our souls. And by the way, I hope that that's what you really seek in life. I hope you seek the truth. Not, not just tidbits of information, but I hope you're really after the truth. I have two sons in, in college, and I, and I hope that they're seeking truth in school. I had a conversation with one of them last night, and it really seemed like he was seeking the truth. He had honest answers, and I attempted to give him honest, or he had honest questions on matters, and I wanted to give him honest answers to those honest questions. They were piercing questions. They were penetra- uh, penetrating questions. He was in the, in the apologetics club he belongs to. They were going all the way back to the idea of evil, because that's the, the presence of evil in the world is one of the major arguments atheists use for, for God's non-existent. And I wanted him to think through those things. I wanted him to think through them honestly, openly. I don't want to try to buffalo him with some sort of rhetoric. I wanted to give him honest answers to honest questions, so he could think through that process. So by the time he's finished with it, he has apprehended that material. And he intends to live consistently with it. Because if he thought through it for, on his own, for himself, then he's really going to own that. And that's what I want for you. I don't want you to believe anything just because I said it. I want you to believe it because you truly seek out truth and you believe that it's the truth based upon validation that you see from the Word of God. So all of us have a certain amount of doctrine and we are going to have experience. What God wants from us is, is doctrine and experience to come together into one integrated whole so that we live an integrated life, a fully integrated life. Now, granted, the only person that's ever done this to the degree of perfection is our Lord himself. So God understands that. And God also wants consistency in the way we live. There should be no inconsistency between the doctrine that we hold, the, the, the tenets of the faith, if you will, and how we behave. But most of the time... There is. Now, some of the times it looks like this. You have people with doctrinal positions, and you would never know it by their behavior. Never know it. Some people, you would not even know that they were a Christian by their behavior. Some would say if this was the model and there was no coherence, there was no consistency, there was no integration whatsoever, then the person must not be a believer. I think that's going too far. We can't say that. But there are believers, there are believers, Christians, who live this way. Where they, there is no integration at all between faith and practice, between doctrine and experience. This is a big problem. But it's not just a big problem for our day. It was a big problem in 60 to 62 A.D. Otherwise, Paul would not have spent so much time talking about this and stressing it. And, and stressing it in a very serious way, among other places, in our passage tonight. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. So, even though this is the way that many of us look too much of the time, it's not the, it's not the way that the common Christian looks. I think this is probably this, um, this rather uh, unsightly diagram. It's the way that most of us really behave. There are times when our doctrine and our experience in faith and practice do intersect. And those are great moments of, of integration. Sometimes they intersect with regard to our family. Let's say we are going to practice consistently. We're going to live consistently with what the Bible says and what I know to be the truth when it comes to my family. Because I'm a family man, and I want my family to be brought up in church, and I want my family to love the Lord. So that's one place that for a lot of people it intersects. I don't know if you're aware of it, but but in most churches, I'm talking about 
So you may have raised them up all the way from the time they're little, they go through your programs, and they go through your Sunday schools, and then they go through your teenage and college age Christ, and they go away. Now, sometimes you have people come into town, you know, like college station does Bible studies for like 10 weeks ministry, and then they go, I know 2,000 people, six weeks older stuff, these college kids. So the one quarter people that are coming to their church supports that ministry for those, and I'm so, as a parent, had two kids go through that church, and I'm very grateful for their ministry. But but some people, they, a lot of people, they, they go through church as, as uh, young people. They appreciate the word. They enjoy their time at church. And then they go away to college. And they just disappear. They get jobs. They do college work and postgraduate work. And they've got to work on Saturday night. And they've got to work on Sunday morning. But for whatever reason, they just don't get to church. They break that, they break that habit. And then they church too. I'm glad you want your children in church, but you ought to be in church. But I, at least I'm grateful that they're coming to church so that the kids can get something out of it, not as though they need anything. But this is one of those integration points that we do see a lot in our culture. People will come and, and, and experience in, in doctrine or faith and practice do intersect when it comes to the family. Oh, there's another place that certainly intersects, or at least once a week it generally intersects, and that's when we come to church. At least when we all gather together on Sunday mornings, that when our faith and our practice at least intersect for that time. You know, people have different demeanors for Sunday morning at church. They have different vocabularies for Sunday morning at church. They have different attitudes. Here, let me get that door for you on Sunday morning. Is there anything I can do for you, brother and sister? Well, it intersects there. Sometimes it's real. Sometimes it's hypocritical. But there is a real intersection there. But then most of the rest of our lives are lived in a way that where those where the twain shall never meet. And it's good that we have certain intersection points, but that's not what God's really looking for. And when we see this in our, in our lives, we have a partially integrated life. And that's better than a non-integrated life. And in the terminology that I'm using tonight, a fully integrated life would be a mature Christian walk with God. A partially integrated life would be a, a, a person who's partially mature, or maybe maturing, and hopefully this is moving towards something where they will end up, people will end up seeing the value of a fully integrated life in society. But then the one who has, has no integration whatsoever, that would be someone who's an immature believer in Jesus Christ, no matter how long they've been in the faith. There are people that have been in the faith 10, 30, 40, 50 years that are probably still somewhat immature because because they don't know any better. That's what that's why I like that's what I would like to erase from your theological thought process. They're not immature because they don't know better. They may just know. There are people that remain in the faith 30, 40, 50 years that are immature because there's no integration in their life. You see? We just got through studying about almost a year of it in the, in the Epistle to James, the Epistle to James book. There has to be integration for maturity to be taken. If not, what are we?
that's the will of God. If we if we just know about it and assume because we know about it that we're mature and we're not doing something with what we know, we're truly and Paul in vain tells exactly the same way. That the the Paul teaches in Ephesians chapter two, verse ten, is the same message that James is teaching in his epistle as well. So in Ephesians chapter two, we need to remember as we get to verse ten that that verse ten is the last sentence of this paragraph. And and as we read through, we remember the first three verses teach us that we were dead in our trespasses. Sometimes people say, well, I, I'm going to bring something to the table. Sometimes people knock on your door and they want to talk to you about spiritual things. And, and one of the things they want to talk about is faith plus works. We argue against that so much. Sometimes we say, nobody really thinks that, do they? Well, that's not a dollar that thinks that. There's a whole lot of people out there that think that. In fact, probably more people think that than don't think that. Because they just can't get their, their arms around the idea of grace. Well, I think that's why Paul does what he does in chapter 2. Before he ever really gets to grace proper, he's got to make sure that we understand we're spiritually dead. Dead, dead, dead. Not just a little dead. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Completely dead. And so a dead person can't add anything to the equation. See, before you're going to appreciate grace, you've got to understand that you have a need for it. You've got to understand that your need is just as much, was, don't worry about this one, but was just as much as anybody else has ever lived. Our need of grace is just as great as those people who took their foot and beat our Lord with it. That's what God calls us to do. We were both in the same boat. Now, to the degree that you don't buy that, and you're not getting grace, you don't understand grace. That's why Paul wants to make sure in the beginning of this chapter we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. There's nobody that's left out of this. And when you're dead, you're dead. There's not people that are more dead than other people. If you're in the cemetery and you're dead physically, everybody that's there is equally dead. And here, we're all equally spiritually dead. And that's huge. It's so huge, my friends, because if we don't get that, we don't have the first stone on the foundation of our spiritual life. We've got to realize we don't earn or deserve any of this. That, that's humbling. But if we think even just a little bit of it, we had coming to us. We haven't got the first stone of that foundation. Extremely, extremely important. For we are his workmanship. Verse 10. The word for indicates that Paul is continuing along with the same thought, but you remember in that Greek sentence, the word his is actually the first word of the sentence. I told you that was Greek. For his workmanship is ours. And this continues along with the idea that will be mentioned in the next verse now, which looks like this in the Greek text. I put both the Greek and the English up here for you again. Again, I don't do this with every single verse or even with every phrase of every verse, but when it's really critical to our understanding, it's helpful for me to show you this. This, this phrase follows up on what we saw last week. Do you remember last week where we are His workmanship? The first word being His, stressing that this is God's work. It's not ours. We're His workmanship. We also introduced the term poema, which we translated a masterpiece, a work of art. 
we're his masterpieces, but it's his work, not ours. Now, now, continuing along with that line of thought, Paul says that we were created, or having been created, it's actually a participle, but having been created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works. We're his workmanship, having been created by Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works. This term strategio, which is this first word, this you can remember from Greek, now it's here, translated completely down here. I haven't been created here. The verb itself is strategio, that's a participle that I turned up on the board. It means having been created. And it's used in the New Testament only of the activity itself. Human beings don't strategio anything in the New Testament. There's a word in, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, that's the same word, Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew term ba'ah, means the giving God created the heavens and the earth. But it's, a, it's a, a parallel kind of term, but here we have it in the New Testament. This is only used of God's creative activity. God is the creator. We're the ones that are created. But what about all that have to stop and say something so elementary as having been created? I think what Paul is telling us is he's driving one more nail into that conclusion that this is a work of God. You're the creature. He's the creator. If he's the creator, how much of me did I create? None of me. God created all of me. How much of, how much of Adam did he create? Nothing. You see the point? So in this verse, before we get to the idea of even good works, we just got through the idea of salvation. We're his workmanship. We're his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus. You see that in white up on the board here. But that's the old plan that Paul is coming back to over and over and over again. This is this special positional relationship that also has an experiential component to it. But it's this special positional relationship that we enjoy that makes us that makes us set apart. We're part of the body of Christ. Paul mentions this in Romans chapter one, doesn't he? I mean Romans chapter eight, excuse me, verse one. Romans chapter eight, verse one. For there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are same phrase, in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation in this sphere, in this position that we enjoy in Christ Jesus. Remember the last couple of verses of Romans chapter 8, the bookend verses, if you will? For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things come nor height nor depth. Any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. He begins and he ends this great chapter in the same way. He wants to end this positional relationship, but there's no way to get to that. He says, no, anybody else can get to that, but you can get to that as well as far as you want to. Uh, that's unfair, or that, that doesn't happen that way. You can't get yourself out. No created thing. You're a created thing. <laughs> yeah, no future judgment is going to separate you from this positional relationship. So Paul is coming back there and reminding us that we have been put into this positional relationship. In Christ Jesus. Oh, but now we get to the, to the point of the message. The point of the message is what comes next. For the purpose of good works. The P, this word right here, the P with the dative often means purpose or goal. It means goal in the Greek language. And that's what it means here. For the purpose of good works. 
we weren't put into a position in Christ where we could simply say, Hey, I'm just saved. I have new life in Christ. Because it's all according to Christ. And the church can't argue about the faith. Our faith is receiving the gift. It's not a merit based faith that cannot be saved. Our faith is receiving the gift. That's not the consistent work still. We were placed into this body of Christ by God, but not so we could sit on our hands for the rest of our existence. You know, if that was the case, I think we'd shut the chapter a little bit quicker. We shut Christ and just, we, we just said, He left us here for a purpose. And the purpose was for good works. See, God created us. And I think one would say, gosh, that's kind of cool. God created us for this purpose. We were dead works but God. We couldn't make ourselves alive but God. We couldn't raise ourselves up with Christ but God did. We couldn't seat ourselves with Him in the heavenly places but God did. You see, He's just following through with the same theme that He introduced all the way back in verse 4. In verses 8 and 9, Paul erases any doubt at all that that we contribute anything to the process and that the entire process is the work of God. Then he says that salvation as a process is not of ourselves. It's a gift of God lest any man should boast. Nobody has any reason to boast. Then he moves right into verse 10. For we are his workmanship. We're his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus. We didn't do that. Actually, it's a passive participle. Having been created, that means, not to get too technical, but means the act is done to you. You're not doing it. God's doing this act. It's all of God. Not our salvation, but of God. Careful. What comes after salvation is God. It's not like He did all the work of salvation. Now we'll take over and thank you very much. That's the wrong idea. He wants us to know. This is the integration point, my friends. This is when the two arrows come together. This is the point at which they meet. It's chapter 2, verse 10. God created us. Doctrine and experience come together in an integrated life for the purpose of good works. Salvation is of God. In fact, the, the idea that the whole thing is of God, both uh, salvation and, and our return process after salvation, is so, so biblical, it really baffles me. It really baffles me how any man would even modicum of knowledge about God. He comes to you and then straight in the face says, well, I know you have to believe in Jesus Christ, but you also have to believe in God. You know, I don't see how they can say that to you. If, if you have even a cursory reading of the Bible, you should know better than that. And I think it has to do with the oldest of all Because in order to accept what the Bible says, then we've got to admit to ourselves that we are totally and completely totally and completely helpless to live the Christian life apart from the grace of God. We're just as, just as helpless to live the Christian life as we were to accept the gospel. That's the beauty of how Paul inter, intertwines these two verses, these three verses, chapter 2, 8, 9, and 10. I want to look at the entire chapter, especially beginning with verse 6. Grace is 
the book says that we've been created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works. In the most general sense, the good works that he's referring to are what he's going to command in the what God commands in the application text of the chapter 6 and verses 6 and 7. Those are general commands of application that are put on your life. But there are specific that are going to be different, that we should walk in them, that we should live in them. Everybody has incredible plans for their life that God has mapped out before they came to Christ. They're unique to you. They're, they're talented to God. They're gifted to God. Maybe God has a plan for them. And it's in the doing. And God expects us to be faithful with the opportunities that he's prepared for each one of us, the ones that he prepared in eternity past, as individuals. I can't be faithful to what he prepared for you. And you can't be faithful for what he prepared for me. I can only be faithful for what he set in front of me. And the beauty of this is, all of us have an equal opportunity to hear a well done as a gentle to your soul. Because all of us have had these good works prepared beforehand. Now, th- here's the catch. Just like at salvation, th- when we have the opportunity, when the gospel was presented to us, we said either yes or no. And you know what? After salvation, God, God places these opportunities in front of us like a hammer by a nail. And we have the opportunity, we, we have options now, with each opportunity to say either yes or no. Say yes, the more faithful our walk is, the more integrated our Christian life is, the more we say no, then the more nations we have in church are going to say no. And the things that you have to say yes to or they get to say yes to are privileged. They are different to anyone else's. And we can't judge our lives by someone else's giftedness or their opportunities. There's something different. My wife said to me, if I can extend the opportunity to close, we'll leave two, two different ladies today. It's just phenomenal. Almost every week she comes home and says, what's the deal? And I almost, even though I know better, there's there's a part of me that comes real close to getting jealous about that, you know? I don't get that opportunity, and that may be in a public way, but that's what she's faithful. If she's not here tonight, I'll brag on her. She's faithful for the opportunity that God put in front of her. Now, the application of this is not to, to ring up and say, well, where's the locust? You know, the local crisis pregnancy center, do you guys need volunteers? That's not it. God's going to place an opportunity in front of you. I don't know what that is, and it may not be for evangelism. I think it probably is from time to time. But it may be to show an act of kindness to somebody. That's one of those opportunities. And it may be to pray for somebody else. That's an opportunity. I don't know what it is. There are many, many different things that God puts in front of you. The idea is that we should say, Yes, they've been planned out. Now, we need to be careful here that we don't allow some well-meaning Christians to bully us, to use that term lovingly, to bully us or to coerce us by some sort of emotional appeal technique into fulfilling the life that God set up for them. Because it happens. Sometimes it happens with, God bless them, it happens with missionaries. Where they come in and try to make the congregation feel guilty that they're not on the mission field. And I never liked that when it happened. Usually they don't get invited back if that's what happens. Because that's not the purpose. They need to tell us what they're doing on the mission field. Maybe get you excited. Maybe hey, it's okay to throw in some. Say, listen, you think you'd like to come on the mission field? Talk with me. It's a great thing. But don't bully you or coerce you because that's what God prepared for them. They need to be faithful to that. 
if you've got to fight others, then God prepares for you. Maybe life's too hard. You think about it. I mean, maybe maybe there's plenty too many things going on that are distracting for for you to figure out what it is God has for you. Oh, but I've got it. Walking is, is not it, it is not a, a leap. It's a step by step thing. You do it one at a time. Um, but walking in these good works may be something that starts with hey, just let the guy in the cabin. You know, just for you know, maybe they're in trouble. Maybe they need to get home. Maybe they need to use the call. Maybe they're in jail. Maybe they're in jail. Maybe the clerk at the table is just a really bad joke. Maybe it's something as, as complex as planning a long-term overseas mission trip or something. But don't do that unless that's what God can for you. Don't force it. And don't let anybody else force it on you. Well, I, I hope you've seen some of the beauty of this thing because we've got other slides. But the three, yes, we have a responsibility as the church to live a fully integrated Christian life. That's not the problem most of us. Most of us have been reading the Word a long, long time. And what I hope this this passage does for us is it motivates us, it integrates us. Faith and practice, doctrine and experience coming together so that we have one coherent, integrated life. A life that is moving toward maturity. And we can't do that on our own. This, as Paul will teach us later on in this letter and in the past, and other places, has got to be accomplished by man by his moment by moment. Biblical truth is lived out consistently and coherently. A life that is joyous, prophecy, and joy. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. I thank you that you did all the work in our salvation. You have provided these opportunities for good works for us to walk in Christ. Help us to help people be empowered as they go to work for you. Help us to be faithful and obedient to your work in our lives. Live out the lives and perform the good works for your empowerment that you set out for us. We thank you for the honor and glory of this church. In fact, we thank you. That's why we thank you. All one of you, all of us, humbly, we'd like to thank you.
saying, well done, that's what we live our lives for. We want to hear those words, not to pay you back. We don't work to pay you back. We live our lives this way because of 